This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So um, the, the, the big title of this, and you can see I've added a couple other big titles um, to this, um, but Art, Meaning, and the Public Square, it reminds me that when I was a kid uh, growing up in California a long time ago, uh, and uh, I would watch Sunday, uh, late Sunday morning basketball, uh, after church, of course, uh, <laughs> the, the Boston Celtics and the, the New York Knicks, and the Knicks played in Madison Square Garden. And I always thought, I had this weird image in my mind of, of where they played. They played in Madison Square Garden, right? Um, it's like I didn't know what a public square was. And because, uh, of course, it's Madison Square Garden. And um, uh, so art meaning in the public square, we're now two generations, two and a half generations past my incomprehension of what a public square is uh, from growing up in a suburban environment. So that's part of the cultural challenge um, that we face. Um, so a question, first of all, uh, are there any architecture students in this crowd? One, two. Okay, excellent, welcome. Uh, it's us against them. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, I want to say it's a, and, and this is a test. This is a test for all of us. Uh, uh, what's what's going to follow? Actually, in, in the next in the next four days, I think. Um, also, um, um, Christians, I want you to know um, the eschaton is urban. Just want you to be aware that the eschaton. We have it on good authority that the eschaton is urban. Um, Okay, well, uh, finite amount of time. So I actually have uh, a subtitle here. So um, this is, yes, this is the first of four lectures uh, on city, this is Cities and Human Flourishing. But um, the, the, the overall title that I came up with, and it's, you may, may uh, when Father Reginald was describing my books, I realized that they all have um, um, semicolons and you know two clauses um, in them, and I, I really have to stop that. It's really not. A, it's not a. It's not a. Uh, it's not an attractive. It's not a part of myself that I like. You know? um, so um, anyway, so but this lecture is entitled toward a post, or I say this series of four lectures is entitled towards a post-liberal neo-Aristotelian city, or or, <laughs> and, and I got to say this came to me. The, the, what I'm going to read came to me like in a flash, and I, I had to write it down. It's impossible that I could have remembered it. It's impossible I could have reconstructed it. It was one of those things that, I don't know, I, I wasn't doing any drugs or anything like that, but, <laughs> but it may, may have been a flashback. I don't know, but it's uh, the mundane conditions of the 21st century city of man upon which the beauty, brackets, beautiful summum bonum, of the city of God supervenes both eschatologically and sacramentally. Um, well, let's see if let's see if, if that even holds together um, by the end of the week. I have no, but the, the, the main point about that is, is that uh, what I want to talk about primarily uh, is just has to do with sort of the mundane details in some ways of making what we like to call um, we like to call it Notre Dame traditional urbanism. But that's really a bad name because it can be good traditions and bad traditions. So what we want to say is that. Um, uh, good traditions of walkable mixed-use services. We'll, we'll talk about that. But it's mostly this mundane stuff, but part of the point that I want to make is that this mundane stuff uh, really does have 
uh, both eschatological and sacramental uh, implications. And, and so we'll, we'll come around to that, I hope. Um, I'm trying to think what else. There was something, all these prelims. Oh, I've got to say, like the first probably 15 or, like, 15 or 20 slides are all just kind of background for everything that's going to follow in the next uh, in the next three lectures. And so you're going to get about three and a half lectures. Um, and maybe, maybe if the if the background is not familiar to you, then great. You know, then then I hope it'll it'll help um, make sense. But just I don't want to assume anything. And actually, some of the topics have already come up. Uh, in the Q&A session uh, and, and from uh, Tom's lecture, which, which is a fantastic, um, fantastic talk. Thank you, Tom. It was really um, quite engaging. Um, so, uh, yeah, so today, Cities and Human Flourishing, tomorrow, uh, Urban Formal Order 1, uh, Space, Anti-Space, and Junk Space. Um, third lecture, Urban Formal Order 2, Natural Law and Positive Law. And lecture number four, The City as Eschaton and Sacrament. And um, I drove here yesterday from um, South Bend, Indiana, and uh, listened to it. Almost finished uh, a canticle for Leibowitz, um, which uh, I've known about for years and have wanted to read for years, uh, and was really happy to. But, but as I was driving, there was this line. How many of you have read it? So you may recognize where this, you know, where this uh, is taking place, where this line comes from, uh, at a uh, at a, um, a dinner in the refectory uh, of, of the monastery uh, when the monks are. Well, anyway, I won't go there, but, but the quote, right, that one of the characters says, Monsignor Apollo is a good man and a good priest, but all men are apt to be incredible asses at times, especially outside their domains. I always feel whenever I'm invited to uh, speak to uh, um, Dominicans, as I uh, sometimes am, am, am invited to do, I really feel like I'm outside my, my domain when, I'm, when I start talking about Aristotle and Aquinas. So it's, I'm, a, I'm a visitor to these precincts. So... Um, so bear with me, please, um, and feel free to correct me, uh, fraternally, of course. So, um, so what I want to talk about uh, uh, first, sort of, th this is the premise for um, the the work I do at Notre Dame. It's the premise for um, you know what what I've been trying to inject into the curriculum for a while, even in even before I was um, uh, able to articulate it in some ways. But um, this is sort of the background stuff that I want to talk about before I uh, get to my subject. So. Um, um, the work comes out of the Catholic intellectual tradition, my understanding of the Catholic intellectual tradition. And I just, I just want to identify three things. Um, that there are two ways of knowing about God, nature, and human nature, reason and revelation. That there's um, uh, the issue of Catholic metaphysical realism and the unity of truth. And modern Catholic social teaching and some of its inferences all inform the urban design um, work that, um, that um, I, I um, that we try to do in our studios. That I, that I, I try to engage my students with this. So, um, so the Catholic intellectual, so two ways of knowing about God. So uh, first, uh, uh, knowledge of, well, truth discoverable and discovered through human reason, uh, represented kind of iconically by Raphael's School, School of Athens at the Vatican, uh, which really covers the realms of science uh, and natural law. Um, uh, you have uh, at the center of the image, you've got Plato and Aristotle, uh, the vanishing point between their heads, right? So, so uh, Raphael is not taking a stand as a Platonist or an Aristotelian. Uh, and of course, Plato is, is pointing up to the realm of eternal forms, and Aristotle is pointing down to the reality of the, of the natural world. And uh, Plato is, is carrying a copy of, of the Timaeus, and um, Aristotle is carrying a copy of the Ethics. Um, so there's the, there's the detail of that. Um, and from the Ethics, uh, actually, I think this is from the politics, I think, because... Uh, I think it was in, in what I uh, asked you to read, um, uh, these little um, quotes ger gerrymandered from it. 
Uh, man, when perfected, is the best of animals, but when separated from law and justice, he's the worst of all. And the best life, both for individuals and for states, meaning states is pole, cities, the best life, both for individuals and for cities, is the life of virtue when virtue has wealth enough for the performance of good actions. Um, so this is God's truth discovered in part, Martin Luther, um, through reason. Um, and then this is God's truth revealed in full uh, in, in the person uh, of Jesus Christ. Um, and, and what I mean by the Catholic intellectual tradition in that aspect in terms of revelation is uh, uh, articulated sufficiently for my purposes here in, in, in the creed. And I'm not going to go through the whole creed, but certain articles accompanied by certain you know, great um, uh, works of art that illustrate it. Uh, belief in God the Father Almighty, maker of all things seen and unseen, the fall uh, of Adam and Eve. Um, for us and for our salvation, he was born of the Virgin Mary and became man. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered, died, and was buried. Uh, on the third day, he arose. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom shall have no end. Um, we believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the dead, the life of the world to come. And then the, the, the quote from the, the final um, um, chapter uh, of the book of Revelation, and I saw the new Jerusalem descending like a bride adorned for her husband. And by the way, what's being depicted here in the Ghent altarpiece in the lower register um, is a depiction of paradise uh, as both a city and a, a garden. Um, uh, and by the way, I mean, if you've never seen that, it, it's, I was, it's literally staggering. You know, the first time I saw it, I was, I was listening to, to it, and, and it really just knocked me back. Um, so I encourage you. Uh, it's really great. And they've just cleaned it up, so it's really, really magnificent. Um, so the second thing uh, about the Catholic intellectual tradition, uh, as, again, these are sort of foundational ideas for the idea, for, for the practice of, uh, for, just for lack of a better term, I'll call it classical humanist architecture and urbanism. Um, and so it has a set of philosophical assumptions um, and, and uh, that, that, that I want to put under the category of, of metaphysical realism, um, which also uh, carries with it an implication of the unity of truth that Catholicism itself makes explicit, um, that there is a unity of truth, that truths cannot contradict truths um, in the Catholic understanding of, of reality and the Catholic understanding of, of creation. So there's three general ideas that I would say are common uh, to, to any metaphysical realist point of view. And I would also say that most religions, even if they don't have a theory of metaphysical realism, most, um, most religions are implicitly metaphysical realist, right? That, they, that their truth claims, their truth understandings, understandings of, uh, or assertions, claims about, about the nature of reality. But of course, Catholicism um, you know, has, this, has this tradition of philosophical reflection on that. But these general ideas that, that can be found even apart from the philosophical tradition, traditions worldwide, is one that the world is real, that the world is intelligible, and that it can be known truly, even if only partially, because of our, our limitations uh, and our, our limited perspectives um, on, on, um, on the world, um, and that human beings flourish in accordance with reality truly understood. Um, in the sense in which the psalmist um, uh, sort of sums that up, your precepts, O Lord, gladden the heart. But then there are these explicit uh, uh, ideas that come uh, from revelation uh, you know, uh, through the Catholic faith, that the world is good, 
but it is fallen and it is in need of redemption, right? So, so it's not just human beings that are fallen. It is creation um, that is fallen, that nature, both nature and human beings as part of nature um, are fallen and in need of redemption. Um, the second is the idea that the world is teleological. It has an end. It is moving toward that, that end, who is God. And then finally, the world is sacramentally charged. It presents arenas, occasions, and means for God's presence um, in the world. And then um, there's the uh, ideas from modern Catholic social teaching, which, is, as you know, I'm sure is a, you know, a, a relatively recent development in the history of the church in the last 130, yeah, about 130 years or so. Um, but drawing from, uh, you know, from the tradition to speak to, to distinctly modern modern traditions or modern conditions. Um, and so the, there's, no, there's no official list, right? But these are recurring themes in, in Catholic social teaching. Um, uh, again, not entirely in rank order, except for I think the, the first one, um, uh, maybe the first couple, but, uh, but the dignity of the human person uh, from conception to natural death. The human person is both a social animal and a moral agent requiring both virtue and grace to turn toward good and away from evil. Um, the reality of communal solidarity, right, that we're all um, in this together. Civil society is a realm of multiple authoritative institutions, the relations of which are governed by the principle of subsidiarity. The common good is the purpose of civil government, and um, note well that civil society includes but is not equal to um, civil government. Public policy with a bias for benefits to the involuntarily poor the preferential option. And what I mean by involuntarily poor is not some kind of notion of the deserving poor. It's simply to distinguish between those who are poor, not by choice, to distinguish between them and people who choose to be poor, right? Because voluntary poverty, in fact, is a great gift uh, in the life of the church. Um, so I think it's important to, to make that kind of distinction. Um, the human stewardship of creation. Um, We've been talking about Laudato Si. We'll, we'll talk about Laudato Si some more. And then religious freedom as a, as a fundamental human right. And then there are some inferences, um, I think, that can be drawn from um, the, these, these Catholic social teaching principles that are germane to politics, architecture, and urban design. Because architecture and urban design are inherently political. Um, they're not, I want to argue that they're not partisanly political. They shouldn't be partisanly political. They become partisanly political. Um, it's, that's part of the nature of the misery of our culture today is that even architecture is, is, uh, you know, is, is, has become partisanly political. Um, but, uh, but it does have to do with the polis, right? Architecture and urban design, by definition, has to do with the polis. So in thinking about that, and again, this, uh, you know, how that relates, how architecture and urban design relates to, um, relates to Catholic social teaching ideas. Uh, so there are sort of two premises um, that, I wanna th that, I was, that I think are foundational. One is that individual freedom, and I think most of us, if we think about it, we, we would see if you would agree with these assertions. One is that individual freedom, the ability to be an agent of one's own life, is a genuine human good. And the second one is that human beings experience communal belonging, the pursuit with others of a shared goal with attendant obligations and pleasures, also 
is a genuine human good. And that it's important that we understand both, of, obviously these two things can be in tension with each other, our intention with each other, individual, you know, individual freedom, individual agency, um, and, and communal belonging uh, are, are I, I would almost say it's, it, it takes a lifetime, right, to, to sort that, that relationship out or understand how we live out, um, uh, how we realize those two goods uh, in our lives. But understanding these as con uh, you know, con constitutive elements of human nature, axioms of human being, and also the inherent tensions um, that, they, that they necessarily engender, I think goes far toward explaining differences of political opinion, even among persons of goodwill. So that for different people, whether by temperament or simply at different points in their lives, different people are disposed to emphasize freedom over belonging um, and vice versa. But nevertheless, if both premises are true, if they're both genuinely, if they're both genuine goods, I think the two conditions follow. That one is that it's essential for both individual and communal human flourishing to discover some kind of nexus, however temporal or imperfect, between these two great goods. I think it also implies that the tension between these two things in one's own life and also in, in society is not permanently resolvable, right? It's just, it's a, it's a dynamic uh, that exists uh, as part of the human condition. Um, but uh, uh, we, we seek to find uh, some kind of nexus, however temporal or imperfect, between these two great goods. And then second, the very boundaries of just and humane civil discourse are defined by a common acknowledgement that both of these goods require political recognition, right? So that even if you're inclined to be a libertarian, you know, you want to recognize and acknowledge uh, the importance of belonging. And even if you're inclined, you know, toward more collectivist understandings of, of political organization, that, that you recognize the, the dignity um, and the good of, of human freedom. And that you know, sort of places, you know, it sort of places things toward the middle with plenty of room for agreement and disagreement. So to the aforementioned, you know, add this hypothesis um, uh, as a hypothesis about architecture and urban design, that beautiful and durable places that we love and in which we feel at home provide the best context for human life and best support the inventiveness and daring that human flourishing in any age demands. So in what follows the discussion about um, cities and human flourishing, um, uh, I'm operating with two, with two premises, um, and then I want to ask a question about those premises. So the premise number one is an Aristotelian assumption about cities that is articulated in um, the fourth century BC in, in Aristotle's politics, um, but actually uh, had been operative long before, right? So Aristotle wasn't theorizing about things that hadn't taken place. Aristotle was, as, as Aristotle was wont to do, he was looking around at empirical cities that had been around for a long time, and he, you know, and he uh, inferred, right, that um, that the purpose or the telos of a city uh, is to promote human flourishing. Moreover, he understood the city, the polis, uh, as an agrarian urban unit, uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit more because it makes complete sense. There's, a, there's, a, there's I'll, I'll try to explain. So, so the premise one is is that. Um, uh, a city is an agrarian urban unit, the purpose of which is to promote human flourishing. And in the second one, um, the second premise, that the Catholic angle on cities has to do with the Catholic angle on cities, that is, is how the church both participated in and inherited that implicit, unarticulated Aristotelian urban idea 
and combined it with an even older Jewish biblical tradition of Jerusalem as the center of religious life. In the process, elevating mundane cities, and again, by mundane, I don't mean boring. I mean everyday, worldly, everyday would be quotidian, but mundane or worldly cities, right? But um, the, um, uh, how, the, um, the, how the church um, uh, elevated mundane cities to dimensions both eschatological and sacramental via the book of Revelation and via Augustine's City of God. So the question that I have with respect to those two premises um, is the question, is the city as the locus of human flourishing a legitimate assumption? And what do modern specialized studies, um, geography, evolutionary biology, physical anthropology, history, tell us about the origins and nature of cities? And so I want to ask you to, uh, uh, in thinking about that question, to consider the work of Jared Diamond uh, and Spiro Kostov. Um, so um, put this under the, put, put Jared Diamond's work, uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel, which was written about 25 years ago, late 90s, um, I believe, put, put this under the category of the, the prehistory of cities. Because I, um, I happened to read this, um, I happened to read this only about six months ago. I'd been, I'd been advised to read it over 20 years ago, right? But uh, not for a course, just by a friend. Um, and, uh, and I read it and it was, was really just blown away because again, my starting point in all of the urban theory classes that I teach, my starting point really has been Aristotle, um, who, you know, again, who was uh, operating with assumptions about cities that, uh, that he had observed, but that had been well established for, for a long time. Jared Diamond goes way back prior to, you know, prior to any kind of, kind of urbanism and, and has the qualifications to do it. Uh, he, his background is he's an evolutionary biologist. He's a, his mother was a linguist. His father is a physician. Uh, he's, uh, he's a geneticist. He's a molecular uh, physiologist, um, uh, a biogeographer. I mean, I, th I think some of these, some of these skills he, he acquires uh, in the field. Um, but um, really, really a good writer and really interesting life that he's lived. But he spent 33, he, the book was written in, I'm going to say 1998, or published in 1998 or nine, And he, even by then, he had lived for 33 years spent 33 years of field work in South America and New Guinea. And he says, what most literate people would consider strange lifestyles of remote prehistory are for me the most vivid parts of my life. Um, I, I think of him as sort of the Jane Goodall um, of hunter-gatherer uh, societies. Um, definitely not an urbanist. He, uh, uh, he, the, book, the book has a weakness. It, I'll talk about this in a minute when I talk about um, ideas of sacred order in pre-modern societies, because he, he really doesn't acknowledge that. And I'm, I'm certain that it exists, that it exists in hunter-gatherer societies. Um, but, um, but he's not, uh, he's not a determinist. He's not, you know, he, he doesn't, he's, he's not um, kind of carrying a, um, he, uh, he, what do I want to say? He, he's, he's not carrying a torch. He's not out to get, you know, um, a religious views of the world. Though he, I, I don't think he's religious, although I do think he is in a way. Uh, but his primary interest in writing the book is uh, to address the question of how and why human life developed differently on different continents. And specifically, he wants to ask the question, why was it, why was it that Europe conquered the Americas, colonized the Americas, rather than the Americas colonizing Europe? Um, and he said you know, that the answers that have tended to be given by historians and philosophers is that uh, well, Europeans are smarter, right? 
um, than, than the people that they colonized. And, and um, uh, Diamond writes about uh, the time he spent with these um, hunter-gatherer uh, tribes in New Guinea saying that, that it's just not true. <laughs> these people that I was with, they're, they're remarkably uh, intelligent. I'm the one that's, you know, that's lacking in intelligence in terms of how to survive uh, in, this, in this kind of environment. And so he began, and this was sort of the germ of, of his um, um, research into sort of thinking about how, because he does think that there were material conditions that led to, um, uh, that give the answer to why Europe uh, and Asia, to some extent, uh, uh, colonized uh, other parts of the world rather than vice versa. And I'll show you, in fact, I'll show you a map in a minute that, that'll sort of indicate what that is. But, but there is another thing that I suspect, I, I don't know if this is true, but there is something that, oh, so I'll, I'll say one more thing, is that, first of all, he's, he's not an urbanist, uh, and he does not write in the book anything anti-urban, but he's written things since then where he's, he's made the claim that the first great mistake that human beings made was the invention of agriculture, right? <laughs> and, um, and, and that has a lot of implications, right? Because uh, the invention of agriculture led to the invention of cities. No agriculture, no cities, because uh, they're both place-based things, um, and, and so what he's really arguing, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's contrary, it's, you know, it's, it's this great argument, con, you know, uh, contrary to Aristotle, right? Cities are not the locus of the best life for human beings. Hunter-gatherer societies are the locus uh, for the best human beings. Now, it, it's kind of strange uh, it, to me, not strange, it's sort of analogous to the environmentalists who think that human beings are what's wrong with the planet and, and everyone else should go but me. Uh, and, and, and someone who says, well, um, yeah, cities are, cities are, are terrible and, and we'd be happier in hunter-gatherer societies, but who, you know, works in a research university and, um, you know, li lives a, lives a life, you know, that, that, um, you know, is, is kind of contradictory to that. Um, so there's a little discrepancy there. Nevertheless, um, it's a really interesting and smart, um, um, point of view, but, but also, what motivated it that he doesn't acknowledge anywhere, but I have a suspicion. I don't know this. I don't know this. And I, I, I hope I'm not opening myself up to some kind of, you know, um, misplaced charge. I suspect that he's Jewish and that he has a kind of universalistic sensibility from that tradition, uh, from the biblical tradition, whether, whether he's a believer in it or not, I don't think that he is, about the, the unity of humankind, right? Uh, as, as created. I mean, there's, there's these cultural things that exist uh, deep within us in our, in our religious and cultural traditions, even if we don't recognize them or acknowledge them. And I suspect that there's part of that. I think it's a wholly admirable um, thing um, that he's describing, but it's, it's entirely speculation um, on my part. But it's a really interesting uh, counter thesis. And it's really important. Uh, it's of critical importance to... Um, understanding agriculture as the, as the prerequisite to cities. And so this is a little um, diagram. Do I have a, I can't. Okay, so you're gonna have to, so the origins, the origins of human beings, um, the, the, this is 25 years ago. I have no idea how the, how the anthropology, how the theory has, has changed since then. But his, his, uh, he was arguing that, you know, most, uh, most um, archeologists and anthropologists think that um, that human ancestors come from three different kinds of um, three different kinds of apes, um, that uh, and that there is a moment they, they trace it back. There's a moment. There's a kind of a gap between the 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 
the, uh, the fossil records that they have and the emergence of, of recognizable human behavior. It's about a 10,000 year gap that they don't quite know what to do with um, in terms of, but they, except that they, they acknowledge it. Anyway, so if you look at, the, at Central Africa there on the, on the left, the, the origins of human beings, 7 million BC, and then you look at the arrows that are going immediately out of it. They go up to northern, they go up to Europe. Uh, so there are human beings in Europe by 500,000 BC and human beings in uh, Asia by a million BC. Uh, and then it took, you know, like it took 40,000 years to get down to Australia, 33,000 years to get to Papua New Guinea, 20,000 years to get to Siberia, 12,000 years to get from Siberia across to Greenland and then 11 to 12,000 years to get from uh, North America to, to South America. So the point is, is, that, is that Europe and Asia, that Eurasia, have been populated by human beings for uh, an extraordinary long period of time. Uh, and, that, uh, and this is something that was just when I sort of thought about the implications of this, as he described it, it's really quite remarkable because uh, to think about it, because, because it's, it's Eurasia, right? It's Europe and Asia that have this record. In fact, so, so the title of his book, right, Guns, Germs, and Steel, is that he's, he's describing what the, what the colonizers had with them when they, when they conquered, you know. Um, and, and he also makes the point, which again, I greatly pre appreciate, um, is that they're not the only, you know, uh, Europeans and Asians are not the only ones who were engaged in conquest, right? That human beings, you know, the hunter-gatherers were engaged in conquest as well. They just had more primitive weapons. And in fact, he makes the point when he's talking about the, the merits of, of a hunter-gatherer life versus the merits of, of uh, an urban life, a civilized life, civil, chivitas, you know, um, that you're actually, you're more likely to be murdered uh, in a hunter-gatherer society, but you are, um, you're far less likely to feel alone and alienated uh, from the, the, your community and the cosmos. Um, so take your pick, you know? <laughs> um, um, so anyway, um, so the, the point is, though, is that the, uh, there are certain things that preceded urbanism, right? And, and the first was the development of agriculture. And so the first was, was the domestication of plants, and the second was the domestication of animals. And he goes into quite a bit of detail about how, you know, uh, different species, how these species became domesticated. But he points out that the, that the Eurasians had a big advantage. And how big an advantage? Like 400,000 to 900,000 year advantage in terms of human evolution, right? And, and, and the reason for that is because they were up in the same latitude, right? That, that the movement of plants and animals basically stayed in the same, you know, above, you know, in the, in the Northern hemisphere and, and went back and forth. Whereas the movement from North America to South America or into Africa, um, now I don't know why Australia, you know, uh, got, you know, um, got settled. Well, even, even Australia is a relative newcomer. But it, it takes a lot more effort for plant species and animal species to migrate uh, north-south than it does for them to migrate east-west. Anyway, so uh, really kind of interesting um, argument for why, why there was an advantage. So, so the, again, the, the, the moniker is guns, germs, and steel. What did the Europeans have that the, that the, the, the Native Americans in, in South America did not have, they had guns, they had immunization to germs, and they had steel. And, and um, he gives this, in fact, the, the picture on the cover of the book is this encounter between um, um, uh, 
Pizarro's soldiers, 200 soldiers who uh, met um, with the Incan, I think the Incan Empire, uh, of, you know, army of, of, of you know, tens of thousands, right? And, and defeated them uh, uh, and did not suffer a single casualty because they had horses, they had guns, they had, uh, they had swords, steel swords, and they had immunization. Uh, and, and so the diseases that they were immune to, they brought, I mean, so anyway, the, so the, it, it was just a, uh, the, 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 uh, the Incas were at a tremendous disadvantage, um, not so much from intelligence, but just from the way that, that um, the material conditions had allowed these decisive um, tools to, to develop. So, um, so this, is, this is an Aristotelian argument, um, going back to the Aristotelian argument about cities, that although unevenly distributed worldwide, by the fourth century BC on the Peloponnesian Peninsula, Aristotle could argue in the politics for first, why cities, why a polis, were the best sort of human settlement to promote human flourishing, and second, that it is natural for human beings to make and live in cities. So this is great, right? Because um, I, I love in the Aristotelian tradition that there's this distinction between um, that just because you're an artisan, right? Human beings are artisans. We make artifacts, we do things, but it's natural for us to do that, right? And why is it natural? It's because um, it is, it is, our nature is understood with respect to our end, with respect to our telos, right? So, um, so um, this argument, uh, this Aristotelian argument, fraught as it is with assertions about what is natural, is also a qualified premise of what follows um, over the next four days. But before I go back to that, I want to I talk about Spiro Kostov. So the second person is, is Spiro Kostov, who's an architectural historian, urban historian, and again, uh, dealing with the history of cities, and in his book, uh, The City Shaped. And the primary purpose um, of, his, of his book is to elucidate the physical traits of the urban landscape without a priori theories of urban behavior. In other words, he doesn't come at it with the point of view, with a philosophical point of view of cities are good for human beings, that human beings flourish in cities. He's just saying, let's look at the different forms, the different physical forms that, that cities have taken, try to understand, understand that. And so he comes up with, um, uh, in the book, he, he, three, three town taxonomies and three period categories. That, uh, so in the six categories, a couple of them are, seem a little, a little strange, but a couple of them are right on. So the town taxonomies, one is the, the, uh, the idea of a holy city, um, of, of a city as a microcosm, right? Uh, and microcosm is its own explanation. It's a small cosmos, right? It's a little cosmos. It, it, it's, a, it's a representation and participation in, in the cosmos. So um, there are holy cities. There are... and, and and actually, so, and, and the taxonomies are related to the period categories, right? So that the holy cities um, are pre-industrial, uh, which is a point that I'll uh, develop a little further. Um, and so, uh, so he makes not not all pre-industrial cities were holy cities, but I will say, pretty it's pretty much universal that all pre-industrial cities marked the sacred in some way, uh, with buildings or in their in their uh, in the form of the cities themselves. Um, then the second uh, is, is practical, which he characterizes as machine um, taxonomies. The city is a kind of machine, uh, which again kind of corresponds with the Industrial Revolution and the development of, of architectural modernism as an ideology about 
about, um, about modernity. Um, and then the, the third uh, in each category are, are a little odd. I mean, one is what he, what he calls organic, and he says that you know, it's, it, it's biological, but he, he also recognizes that, that you know, when we look at cities like, for example, I mean, the, the image up there is, is, is of Siena, and you know, it's got the winding streets, and uh, it doesn't, you know, it's not, it's not a grid, and people will call that an organic town plan, but he, even he recognizes that that's not really quite right, that there are actually some, some reasons why, um, why, why Siena developed as it did. Um, and then, uh, uh, so, so that's, that's a little odd um, category uh, that he's, he's dealing with. And then uh, under the period categories, the third one, and he wrote this book in 1991, which again is odd because the, the city that he talked about uh, was the socialist city. It's right, like it was right about the time that, uh, that um, you know, the communist governments in, in Europe were all falling. Um, and I was thinking if you're writing it today, maybe you'd call it the, the crony capitalist city uh, because both of those things are things. Um, so he does uh, address this question, though, uh, he, uh, in, in this chapter, what is a city? And this is a, this is a book well worth reading, too. It's a historical uh, account, but it's really, um, it's just, it's real, it's a really, really good uh, introduction to, to urban form. So he, he uses two definitions, uh, both of them, interestingly, from 1938. Uh, from uh, cultural commentators, uh, writers on the city. I don't, I don't, remember, I don't even know Worth's first name, but uh, Mumford, of course, is Lewis Mumford. Uh, but but uh, Professor Worth, I'll presume, um, uh, uh, defined a city as a relatively large, dense, permanent settlement of socially heterogeneous individuals, which is really great. And I put great in quotation marks, right? Because it's a really modern individualist understanding of what a city is. It's not an Aristotelian uh, understanding of a city at all. Um, and then Lewis Mumford uh, 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 d defines a city as a point of maximum concentration for the power and culture of a community. And that actually, I think, has more, um, you know, more to it in terms of, of um, you know, uh, particularly of, of cities that, be, that, are, that are important cities. Um, so Kostov's gloss then uh, for all of this, I mean, what, what, what he, he, he doesn't give a specific definition, but he, he provides a, a number of terms um, of characteristics that, um, that cities entail or are characterized by an energized crowding of people. Uh, they're, they're clustered with satellite settlements. Uh, they have borders, either physical or legal borders. Um, they have differentiated labor. They have a, a source of income. Now he says source of income, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a strange term. It's, they have an economic basis, right? They have some, something going on in terms of exchange um, that, that, um, that they can trade, that, 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 with which they can sustain themselves. Uh, they have a written language for laws and records. They are connected to an agrarian landscape. This is really critical. They're connected to an, to an agrarian landscape. That is uh, a settlement and a region, right? Because if, again, if you think about it, um, you know, when agriculture is invented, um, uh, farmers are growing crops. They need a market for their crops. Uh, people who live in cities need food, um, and they they go together uh, very well. Um, then uh, they're characterized by a monumental framework, um, uh, often with a uh, typically with a kind of formal hierarchy, often having to do with sacred and civic buildings. And then they also are made up of buildings and people, which um, uh, again Aristotle describes both of those things as material causes uh, of, of a polis, right? That, that you can't have a, a, a you know, the, the polis as a material thing 
doesn't exist without a human population and it doesn't exist without uh, buildings and, and I'll argue tomorrow, uh, the spaces that they, that they define. Um, and the, I should say in all of this, well, let me, let me, let me, let me just sum up um, about the kind of arguments that are being made by Diamond and Kostoff and, and my own observations about this. That I think without rejecting anything, and I, I apologize for like reading this. This is my lecture and you know, you don't, it's, you know, it's just, it is what it is. So, um, uh, but uh, without rejecting anything that's true in the observations and arguments of, of either Diamond or Kostoff, Note that their arguments about human social life and cities, respectively, are descriptive arguments, but not normative arguments. That is to say, their respective modern academic disciplines do not allow them to ask or make judgments about things like the best life for human beings, aka human flourishing. Because those, because those disciplines, uh, beyond their own uh, internal framework, um, those questions beyond their own internal framework are not teleological, right? Their own, I mean, their own, their own discipline is teleological, but it doesn't embrace those kinds of teleological questions, right? Um, and, and to ask such questions about human flourishing and to make such judgments, they would have to go beyond the boundaries of their, of their disciplines. But Aristotle, the Catholic Church, and once upon a time architecture and urbanism and urban design are teleological and therefore make normative arguments, including normative arguments about cities. Now, I would say that's less true of architecture and architecture schools than you would think, uh, or maybe not, but it's, it's not actually very common. So, so the question, hence, what is the best life for human beings? I'm not gonna, can't answer that right now, but maybe later. Um, what can we know about cities and how do we know it's reliable knowledge? Uh, which together beg a prior question. What can we know about anything? Which of course is a, a philosophical question requiring an articulation of certain philosophical premises, which I'll not go into here, but can later informally suffice it to say uh, this um, sort of metaphysical realist tradition uh, in which both Plato and Aristotle participated. And of course, which Thomas Aquinas just you know, nailed uh, that, that that's, the, that's the presupposition for uh, you know, what we can know, um, that we can know the world truly if incompletely. Um, so, I'm sorry, so one last, there was one last thing, not so I forgot the <sighs> terrible thing, terrible thing too. All right, so the final, final preliminaries, right? So we're almost, we're, I'm almost ready to start. <laughs> um, is so, so my interest here is to help us understand the nature and purpose of cities truly. Uh, operating on the presumption that genuine truths about cities known to us through various academic disciplines cannot contradict any genuine truths about cities that might be uniquely Christian, uh, nor vice versa. But although specifically Christian truths cannot be contrary to reason, they may not be deducible by reason. And so in addition to mundane features of cities understandable in principle to anyone, I also want to invite you to consider whether and how a true understanding of cities might increase in light of some of the following Catholic Christian truth claims and their possible implications. First, understanding nature as creation. Second, understanding creation and human beings as good but fallen and in need of redemption. Um, understanding man as an intermediate being with stewardship duties toward created nature 
entailing prudential judgments of when to preserve nature, when to protect nature, and when to improve nature. Also presuming that human beings, much of human life, entails fighting nature, right? I mean, human beings, human beings, we tend not to think about this, but we're, we're always potential food. You know, ever get bit by a mosquito, you know? So, um, so um, man is an image of God whose integrated individual and social communal human nature mirrors the Trinitarian God revealed as three co-eternal persons in one eternal divine substance. The Christian life here below as double-edged dual citizenship in the city of man and the city of God. The incarnation of the second person of the Trinity in Jesus Christ, whose death and resurrection both redeems creation and reveals creation's potentially sacramental character. The latter a necessary premise, perhaps, for intuiting truly that beautiful buildings and cities can be simultaneously contingent historical artifacts and yet timeless. Creation moving toward an end that is urban, the new Jerusalem, the city of God, in which all good and beautiful cities, not sites, cities here below participate proleptically and perhaps sacramentally. Okay, so, um, so I want to talk about, what is the title of my lecture? It's, what is it? Uh, cities and Human Flourishing, thank you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Here we go. So, so I'm gonna talk more tomorrow about, uh, about what I mean, because I think most people, first of all, uh, when, I, when I just make the declarative um, statement that, that uh, human beings flourish best in cities, you know, a lot of people think, oh my gosh, you know, it's so, it's, whenever I'm in Manhattan or whenever I'm in <laughs> Chicago, I just, I, I feel so, so claustrophobic. It's just, well, that's, that's, not, that's not what I mean. I mean, those are cities and they're great cities, um, but, but that's not, there's, there's more to the definition of city than that. Um, and, and it works across scale. And I'm gonna talk about the scales across which that works and what the difference is between a genuinely urban environment uh, and the kinds of places that we've been making for the last 70 years, uh, which are a big experiment in the history of, of human, um, uh, human habitation. Um, but the ascent, just, to, just to, to whet your appetite, the essential features um, of urbanism, whether it's at the scale of a village or at the scale of a city neighborhood or at the scale of a, of a historically dense um, um, center, uh, is a mix of uses within pedestrian proximity in an environment that is spatial. And, I, and, my, and my, lecture on, my lecture tomorrow is about space, what I mean by space, and, uh, and what has happened to space uh, in, the, in the contemporary world. Um, so, so what's illustrated in the, at the top uh, of the slide on the left, uh, Todi, which is in the, the region of Umbria in Italy, it's an Italian hill town, um, a walled, walled city. Uh, in the center, Cooperstown, New York, a uh, you know, just a, uh, a village in upstate New York. And um, on the right, you may recognize a baseball theme in the, in the, in the two on the right. Uh, Wrigleyville um, in Chicago, which is a, you know, just a Chicago, a dense Chicago neighborhood. Low-rise, dense Chicago neighborhood, are all urban. 
Um, and like I say, I'll, I'll talk more about that tomorrow. So, but here's the, here's the, here's the opening, this is, I think this is the opening line, right, of politics, right, of, of the first, first book, the uh, first sentence of the politics. Every group of people with a shared purpose, that is, every community, by the way, this is a paraphrase by me, and I have a paraphrase by a real scholar down below it, so don't, I'm, 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 yeah, be merciful, yeah. Every group of people, this is what I think he said, every group of people with a shared purpose, that is, every community is established with a view to some good, for human beings always act in order to obtain that which they think good. But though all communities aim at some particular and limited good, the city, the polis, a community of communities, the highest of all, embracing all the rest, aims at the highest good. And my brackets are the well-being of all its citizens. And then, uh, I think it's Benjamin Jolly, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but, you know, renowned uh, uh, translator of Aristotle translates that into syllogistic form. In 1885, all communities aim at some good, and this is a little different meaning, right? All communities aim at some good, but the highest aim at the highest good. The city is the highest community. Therefore, the city aims at the highest good. That seems tautological to me. Is that am I wrong? Yeah. No. Yeah, I'm wrong? <laughs> no. It might Yeah, anyway. So, yeah, so a little, anyway. But, uh, so, you can ponder both of those. So, so th these are these are little, some takeaways from the the uh, the chapter, uh, the the readings in Aristotle that I asked you to do, right? So that uh, in the first book, you know, uh, um, uh, first book of the politics, every community is established with view to some good. The city is the is the city as the highest good. The city's the good that the city seeks is the highest good. Uh, uh, the the family and the village uh, are other fundamental human institutions. They exist for the sake of life. But the polis exists for the sake of the good life. The polis, as the end form of society, is natural, right? Because the nature of a thing is its end, is its telos. Um, as we've, we've looked, man perfected is the best of animals. When separated from law and justice, he's the worst. And justice is the bond of human beings in states, in cities. Justice is the bond. So, you know, so... Aristotle's politics is, you know, always translated and discussed in political theory as, you know, um, uh, being about states, right? But I think we understand a little bit better about what he's talking about to say that, that to understand that he's talking about cities. He's talking about, you know, the cities that he knew. Um, so the, in book seven, so between book two and book seven, Aristotle does what Aristotle does is what he, is that he, says, well, you know, let's, let's take a look and see, you know, what are the, you know, let's, let's look at empirical cities and see what their characteristics are and how they're governed. And, and so he, you know, goes through these chapters looking at different cities. And, and then, and then in, in book seven, he says, okay, now that we've looked at these cities, let's talk about what seems like would be the best city. You know, what would, what would, what would, what would that be like? And so he starts out with, you know, the premise. He, he reiterates the premise of the ethics, uh, and we'll come back to this because this is really critical because this is really is the question about what is the best life for human beings, um, where he, he summarizes in the uh, in the, um, you know, in the first chapter, the first I think first and second chapter of book seven, um, uh, the relationship of of moral and intellectual virtue, especially moral virtue to the good life, to the best life for individuals and states that that the best life for human beings and for states is the life of moral and intellectual virtue lived in community with others where there are enough external goods um, to be able to, to pursue um, good, good activities. So then he goes into the kind of more mundane things about the makeup of cities, the material things of cities, which is, um, it, it's kind of amazing to me that actually that um, 
I, I don't know of any urban design curriculum, urban design courses that look at the city, even just in terms of the sort of fundamental uh, Aristotelian causes, right? So, you know, it's a you know, material efficient, uh, um, formal and, um, and final causes. Yeah. So, you know, like what, what's a city made out of? What's a city who, you know, who, who makes a city? Obviously, it's a collective human artifact. I mean, the most complex, arguably the most complex collective human artifact. But, you know, but it's efficient cause, you know, um, what, what brings it into being? It's material cause, what's it made out of? It's, it's formal cause, what is it, right? What is it? It's a, it's a city. Uh, which is not a post-war suburb. A post-war <laughs> suburb is not a city. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and its final cause, what's it for? It's, you know, it's, and it's, it's for you know, human flourishing. And then obviously there are all kinds of questions that arise from that. That doesn't answer, doesn't even begin to answer all the questions, but it begins to answer the most fundamental questions, right? If you can't answer those, then you really don't know what you're talking about. You're not, you're not talking about urbanism. And most architecture schools do not talk about that. They don't talk about it in, in those terms. So what, what else does a city require, according to your side? A polis requires a population, which is, which is one of its two primary material causes. What should the size of a polis be? Uh, it should be encompassable uh, in a single view, right? Now, he, he talked about something actually a little more extensive than what, than what sort of the walkable. I mean, there, there's some dimensions that can be attached to the size of a, of a historic polis uh, in terms of colonial cities and, and things like that, or even in urban neighborhoods. Um, and Aristotle's is a little bit bigger, but but the other important thing is that is that the population has to be um, small enough so that you can either know everybody either personally or by reputation, um, which is a really interesting interesting thought. And obviously, that's not the world that we live in. What what should the territory of a polis be like? It should be self sufficient. It should be protectable. It should be close to agriculture and it should be close to trade. So there's an economic aspect and a you know a, a security aspect to it. Um, should it uh, be characterized by free trade or by protectionism? And Aristotle's a little fudges out. It depends, you know, it's sort of like, like whatever I feel like here, you know, whatever seems best at the time, not, not whatever I feel like, whatever seems best at the time. Uh, the racial characteristics of a city, the Greeks are the best. Right? <laughs> um, what, are, what are the indispensables uh, in a city? Food, um, arts, and by arts he doesn't mean, you know, Sculptors, he doesn't mean Phidias, you know, he means artisans who are making things, making wealth and exchanging it. And, you know, so productive, productive, so artisans, based arts and arts and artisans. Uh, nothing against Phidias, of course. Arms, you know, um, uh, police, you know, soldiers, uh, revenue, uh, religion. It's very funny because he, he says when he writes, he says, religion, he says, oh, but religion should be first. And, and it makes me wonder if, because uh, actually I, I want to, Lisa, when I talk about the components of the city, I'll talk about sacred order first. Yeah, yeah, I've got more, uh, um, and uh, uh, and so it amuses me that he he puts it about six and says, oh, it should be first. And so I don't know whether it's like actually a, you know, if he just forgot or you know if if you know, what he was thinking or what what his his note takers were uh, were doing. Maybe they nodded. Um, <laughs> civil authority uh, judges um, the location and the layout of a polis. Uh, it should have a healthy orientation with respect to winds, right? The, you know, to, um, you don't want to live in um, wet climate and lowlands and things. It should be uh, proximate to springs and reservoirs. It should, uh, it should be uh, adjacent to strongholds. There should be city walls. There should be, uh, this is really interesting, a combination of regular gridded and irregular streets to both, he, he thought that the gridded streets in the modern fashion of Hippodamus, right, who had been designing cities and like Miletus, redesigning cities in, in, in Miletus, that, uh, that 
that those were modern and they were the most beautiful. Um, the little sort of curvy streets he wasn't so enamored of, but he realized that they, they afforded protection to the city uh, in the event of invaders who would have a difficult time to find their way around. So, so the, what's the best? Like, you know, it's the mean, right, for Aristotle. Some combination of the, the two of them. And then the formal elements, guardhouses, temples, uh, agora, uh, freemen's and, and traders' agora. So um, taking off from that, and I'm actually in the home stretch here, um, the, I want to talk about, uh, uh, again, this is uh, what I'm interested in introducing here is, is the idea that, the, that urbanism today, that I think the kind of urbanism that we need today um, is a kind of neo-Aristotelian urbanism that, uh, that in, in the following ways, or in a number of ways that include, I won't go through all of them, but in, that include this relationship between the city and, its, and an agrarian landscape, um, which I, I think is, is, is possible um, to do, um, difficult, but possible. Um, and, uh, and then I'm, uh, I'm, I'm kind of collapsing some of uh, his categories into well, just, just a half a dozen categories of what, what the makeup of a city is. And I want to say in five of them are common to every city. And the sixth is really pre-modern. Uh, and that sixth one is actually understanding the city as, as existing in a context of sacred order. Right. So I'm starting with that because the city existing in a context of sacred order was characteristic of, uh, of pre-modern societies, virtually every pre-modern society. Uh, and even, even the hunter-gatherer societies that did not live in cities, they would carry with them things that marked the center right, of where they were, that in effect functioned like um, uh, uh, religious buildings, religious artifacts that, that marked their relationship between where they were and the cosmos, uh, the larger cosmos within which they exist. So the first um, order of cities is the idea of a city, a polis in sacred order. And obviously looking at this, you, know, you, can, tell, you can tell which the most you know, important building is here and, and recognize it as a religious building. So, um, of course, the, the scholar of this, and he's not without his critics, but I think in this regard, I think he's actually... Um, done great work, or did great work, uh, Machia Iliata. Um, uh, he, he writes uh, in the first chapter of The Sacred and the Profane, writing of, uh, of how pre-modern territories, cities, and buildings uh, evince their location in an intersection with sacred order. He says, the true world is always in the middle, at the center. Whatever the extent of the territory involved, the cosmos that it represents is always perfect. An entire country, for example, Palestine, a city, Jerusalem, a sanctuary, the temple in Jerusalem, all equally well present an imago mundi, an image of the world, severally and concurrently representing the image of the universe and the center of the world. This multiplicity of centers and this reiteration of the image of the world on smaller and smaller scales, think little, you know, think, think of... Uh, religious uh, elements in churches. Think of devotional icons in your home, right? This multiplicity of centers and this reiteration of the image of the world on smaller and smaller scales constitutes one of the specific characteristics of traditional societies. Um, so um, I'm going to say then that, that this understanding of religion, uh, uh, 
he's describing it as a historical and anthropological phenomenon, right? He's not, uh, it's interesting because he, I mean, he was himself a, 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 a kind of Christian. I mean, I think he was a Christian, but he, I mean, he wasn't, he didn't wear uh, his, his religious identity, you know, certainly on his sleeve when he was working. He was really a, f- a phenomenologist and historian of religion. So he was, he was looking at religion as a historical and anthropological phenomenon. Um, and he doesn't, he, he alludes to, but he doesn't really go into um, the sort of the history and the relationship of religion uh, and the founding of the founding of religions and the founding of cities uh, to violence, um, to scapegoating. Um, and uh, do I have until 12? I know, I know, but I know we want we want Q&A. I know. Well, um, I really do. Yeah. Um, so. Um, uh, let's just say that Rene Girard brings a lot to that discussion, uh, not only for the reality of, of, of scapegoating and foundation and, and violence in the foundation of cities and of religions, but also of uh, how Christianity is different or how biblical religion, Judaism and Christianity are, are different with respect to the mechanisms that he identifies between mimetic desire, mimetic violence and scapegoating. Um, but uh, even as a historical and anthropological phenomenon, there, there are ideal cities, which are intimations of transcendence. And then, uh, as he writes, you know, historic cities as microcosms, which are intimations of sacramentality. And then Rene Girard writes the question, you know, is, is biblical religion mythic? Um, and, um, uh, and Girard thinks not, because it looks at, it tries to break the, 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 the functional reality of uh, of biblical religion is to is to reveal the scapegoat me- mechanism and to and to to attempt to break it. Um, but uh, biblical religion, you know, uh, again, it views nature and human nature as creation, and creation is good but fallen. And then there's the, the dual citizenship aspect of, of reality. So sacred order is the larger origin and context of both nature and human life. In the built environment, um, the manifestation and or the acknowledgement of this context as something greater than and beyond our individual and collective selves. And sacred order distinguished from moral order. And this is one of those things that I think isn't done enough. Like where I work, where I work, the secularists all think it's great to be at a Catholic university because of the moral sensibilities that exist, which are are themselves not unproblematic. (laughs) But... Uh, but this distinction is that you know moral order um, is primarily concerned with character, virtue, and law. I mean, we'll talk about that, uh, which has to do with relationships with others, and, and they're grounded in a they're grounded in a larger cosmos. But sacred order, um, in the sense that I mean it, as, as it manifests itself, is really concerned with transcendence. That is, with our relationship to the larger cosmos of which we're part, and an acknowledgement of the deepest mysteries um, of life. And you'll notice that in talking about these orders, I actually have only talked about one order, but but there, at least several of them, they're unavoidably illustrated by physical conditions, right? And that's one of the things. So, and I'll probably have to hustle this up and finish in a minute. But talking about cities existing in sacred order, that's the, that's the pre-modern condition. But for every city, every city is, is a demographic order, an environmental order, an economic order, a formal order. And a, or I should say a moral order and a formal order. And, and those always exist, they always exist simultaneously and they overlap and they affect each other, uh, again, like tides going in and tides going out. You know? I mean, so, I mean, we tend to think of cities today almost entirely in economic terms, right? And, um, but 
you know, in, in other societies, uh, religious beliefs, right, would, ideas about the sacred would circumscribe, right, the, you know, economic exchange, right? Um, Sabbath days, no economic exchange. Every, you know, every seventh year, you know, the certain part of the land lies fallow. Every 49th year, you're forgiving debts, you know, so, so um, the relationship between sacred order and economic order, or, or even today, think about the, the conflicts between environmental sensibilities and economic, um, you know, economic uh, ambition. Uh, those kinds of things are, are, are always in play um, in, in a city. So um, uh, I'll, I won't, I'll skip this. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I've spared you. I mean, I've, I've, I've actually, I've written a lot about these things. I, I, I can make a list of things if you want to take a look. I didn't want to assign. I did sign one thing because it's going to, in fact, you have to read it for tomorrow because it'll just, it'll just save us all a lot of time. I hope it'll save us all a lot of time with respect to um, um, kind of trying to understand the weird state of architecture today um, in the world, which is um, really weird. And also why it's, why it's so difficult for really smart people who understand that it's weird to understand why it's weird and to understand what the alternatives might be. Because the alternatives, we can, we, you know, we can see them. For one thing, I mean, they're, um, they're there for us to see if we know to look, but sometimes if we don't know to look, we can be in them and not see them, right? And so uh, it, there's a default condition, I think, in the culture where, where we, and I include myself, I mean, we need to be taught how to see things in a certain way. So maybe tomorrow. Um, a start. Um, so sacred order in Rome, sacred order in Bruges. Ah, Washington, D.C. Uh, you know, the, the big sacred order in Washington, D.C. You know, we know it. It's the mall. It's the, the, the east-west. It's the Capitol and the Lincoln. It's the White House and the Jefferson. But straight north, up 16th Street. You know, so where the, these are all, you know, national, national um, um, monuments, right? So where do the religious buildings? And is, is Washington, D.C. totally secular? Well, functionally secular, but, you know, the people who, who worship God in Washington, D.C. And where do they congregate? Apparently they congregate on 16th, on 16th Street. So like, you know, um, you know, there's four miles uh, up 16th Street from the White House where you've got something like 35, um, 35 or 40 uh, religious buildings that front each other across 16th Street. Um, Sacred Order in Jackson Square uh, in New Orleans. It's a kind of classic uh, laws of the Indies settlement with the church fronting a square. Uh, Central Green in, in New Haven, Connecticut. There's a nine square grid in the center of the green. There's three churches in the center of the green because the Calvinists started splitting up. Things. And then there's, and then there's um, Savannah, Georgia, which is really a diagram of uh, American religious pluralism, where there are 23 wards uh, of 14 acres, each one with a square in the center of it, about 10 or 12 of which are fronted by religious, uh, different religious denominations. All these places are really uh, great places to go to and interesting examples of, of uh, sacred uh, sensibility in the physical form of the city, uh, even in the United States of America. But prior to 1945, significantly. Uh, so uh, every city is an environmental order, and, and this is critical, so an environmental order. Think of, again, Aristotle, Aquinas, understood human beings as a kind of animal. Um, the city is, cities are how the human animal occupies the landscape. You know, foxes have holes, birds, the birds, birds of the air have nests, human beings have cities. So, um, uh, yeah, even Mother Nature has an agent. So just, um, we, uh, 
Uh, yeah, we, we started to talk today um, already about um, you know different understandings of nature, right? Nature is raw material. Nature is salvific. You know, human beings. You know, we need to get rid of human beings. There's another view of nature that sort of understands that human beings, a materialist view of nature that understands that human beings is existing entirely within nature, where, where nature is everything. It's not anthropocentric, but it's also non-teleological, and therefore nothing that human beings do is unnatural, right? Um, nuclear waste dumps in Nevada, in this view, are no less natural than the Hudson River Valley, right? And then there's the idea of human beings as intermediate beings, which is human exceptionalism of a sort. We are simultaneously part of nature, part of creation, and at the same time, we're stewards of nature and stewards of creation. And we have, and obviously, Laudato Si has a lot to say um, uh, and a, a lot, will provoke a lot of thinking about the implications of that. Um, every city is a demographic order. Uh, um, yeah, I can't, can't go there. Um, yeah, families. Every city is an economic order. Um, this is a quaint view of, of economic exchange. I was trying to think, you know, what, you know, what would be a, a more contemporary one. I just didn't have time to, to put it in there. But it, it would be kind of violent and shouting and ugly. Um, and then uh, uh, there, every city is a moral order. Um, and the moral order is of two types, right? It's about character virtues, right? Which Aristotle, Aquinas, you know, they, they understand character virtue is the key to human happiness. But they also understand that... Um, uh, it requires laws, right? That, that law is a, is a protection. I, if we were all friends, we wouldn't need laws, but because you know, we don't know everybody and stuff, um, we, need, we need to have just laws. And so, um, again, this long quote from Aristotle, uh, again, from the first, um, uh, first chapter of, of book seven, it's, it's really great because he goes through this paragraph and, and sort of says, well, you know, nobody doesn't want to be creative. No, nobody, nobody, nobody wants to be cowardly, right? You, know, you want to be courageous. Nobody wants to to you know, be feeble-minded, you want to be prudent, right? Nobody wants to, you know, to you know, uh, sell his friend, you know, for a hot dog, right? You know, you don't want to be a glutton. You know? Anyway, so uh, it's a great, it's 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 just a great passage because it just goes through and you know weighs the virtues and the vices. Um, and so cities is moral order, the rule of law. This is going to be the the third lecture because formal order, which is what our cities lack, um, spatial order. Uh, is in most places in the United States today illegal. And so um, we want to talk about, again, the, the Catholic tradition has this you know, great understanding of you know, natural law. I'm going I'm I'm to hypothesize a natural law principle about, about urbanism and, then, and say, well, that should be kind of the basis for you know, some positive laws that are different. And then cities as formal orders. Um, and so this is actually, this, this is a good quote. And same three slides that I showed. A city, and this is from um, Leon Creer, um, who's a European architectural architect and theorist. A city can only be constructed in the form of neighborhoods. He means a, a large city. Each neighborhood must have its own center, periphery, and limit, and must integrate most of life's daily functions, dwelling, working, leisure, education, worship, within an area based upon the comfort of a walking person, which is most precincts, most historic centers, uh, colonial cities, Roman colonial cities that are the basis of, uh, you know, major European cities today were founded as basically half mile by half mile settlements because a half mile is what a human being can walk comfortably in 10 minutes, which means that, that in a half mile by half mile precinct or neighborhood, the city of Chicago is laid out. If you know Chicago, every half mile, there's a major street and in between are the residential streets. And, and that's where the public transportation goes along those half mile streets, which means 
that if you live in the city of Chicago, you are never more than five minutes from public transportation. You're never more than five minutes from center to edge, and you're never more than 10 minutes from edge to edge. And that is a, that's an anthropological datum point, that human beings are walking animals. So, um, so should we, within an area based upon the comfort of a walking person, simplicity must be the goal of the urban plan, however complex the urban geography and topography. The city must be articulated in the public and domestic spheres, civic architecture and vernacular buildings, squares and streets in that hierarchy, and urban blocks should be as numerous and small as their occupying uses admit. Sorry, that's it.